Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... I'd been certainly very interested in business. I'd actually worked part-time in a pharmacy while I was at high school. I think we both were incredibly motivated by the idea of being able to write our own story and do our own thing. When high school student Kathy Reed stocked nappies on shelves and vacuumed floors in her after-school job at the local pharmacy, she could not foresee that this would lay the groundwork not only for her future career, but for her life and what would become her booming business empire. Yet that part-time job decades ago, with the opportunities her pharmacist boss gave her, broadened the teenager's horizons, offering Cathy a way out of the Latrobe Valley, where she was born and bred, to study pharmacy at university, and then launch onto a much bigger national and international stage. But along the way, marriage to her teen sweetheart, followed by a not-so-pleasant divorce, threw all Cathy's life cards up in the air. Curiously, Cathy Reed believes maybe her entrepreneurial gene kicked in then, and that divorce made her embrace chance and uncertainty and turn them into possibility. Cathy Reed isn't a household business name in Australia. You've possibly never even heard of her. But over the past two and a bit decades, Cathy and second husband Stuart Giles created and built from scratch what would become one of Australia's largest healthcare empires. The Epic Pharmacy Group, which services many aged care facilities and hospitals, plus the Icon Group, which is today this country's largest private cancer and oncology services group. In part one of our chat, Cathy reveals how it began and how they grew it, and then just how close it all came to crumbling down around them when the global financial crisis hit the hugely indebted business in 2008-9, and what it took to work their way out of the mire. Kathy Reed, welcome to Build It Thou Come podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure, Helen. Thank you. Well, now, you and your husband, Stuart Giles, are the founders and creative force behind, well, really a healthcare empire, both in pharmacies and cancer care clinics. Firstly, can we just start with you painting us a brief picture of what is that empire that you built? What facets are in it? How big in number of pharmacies and hospitals did you either build or or own? What was it valued at at the height of your success? Yeah, so Stuart and I are both pharmacists by background and back in the late 90s, we saw an opportunity in aged care, institutional pharmacy, I guess, aged care and hospital pharmacy to set up a business and operate in a way that wasn't done typically at that time where we were operating across multiple states and providing a a hub and spoke style of service to hospitals and aged care facilities within the catchment areas. So back in 1998, when we first started out, well, we got engaged on the Wednesday and bought our first pharmacy the following Monday. Oh, really? No mucking around? 
No, no. Well, I was actually working on the startup plan for the business, but I was under confidentiality agreement with the people I was working with. And Stuart was actually working as the uh, pharmacy manager of a large Melbourne-based hospital pharmacy. And so we didn't talk work at all to avoid any, any perception of any conflict. And then when we got engaged, he said, what are you actually doing for work? That would probably be quite helpful to know. And he he left what he was doing and came in and joined me. Really? So he was what? He was so impressed with the idea that you were working on this sort of secret, secret squirrel plan that he left his own job. Yeah, look, I think the thing, he loved the place that he was working at and he enjoyed working with the people. And ironically, that story comes full circle sort of 20 years down the track. But I think we both were incredibly motivated by the idea of being able to create something of our own and really write our own story. And it was certainly a much higher risk strategy. The people that he was working with actually invited me to come and join them and, and work in that business as well, and, yeah. which was a lovely offer. But the, the tipping point for the decision was very much that chance to, to write our own story and do our own thing. Can I just jump forward uh, 20 20- something years and get you to paint us a brief picture of the empire that you built. Then we'll go back and I'd love to obviously (laughs) hear the full story of how you built it. So Epic Pharmacy Group has pharmacies trading through both the, well, up until recently, we actually just sold the aged care pharmacies in late 2020. But for the past 20 years, we've run aged care pharmacy services, private hospital pharmacy and cancer care pharmacies through a network of pharmacies located primarily within those institutions or close by to them across Australia. So for listeners who might be scratching their head going, I've never actually been or seen to an an epic pharmacy. We're not a retail brand at all. It's actually a good thing not to have seen us because it means that you haven't been in one of those hospitals having treatment where we're we're based. And then from there in in 2012, we actually expanded into, into the ownership and operation of some of the cancer care hospitals that we were the pharmacy providers to, and that was the start of ICON Group. And now ICON runs medical oncology and radiation oncology centres and chemotherapy compounding across Australia and Singapore, Hong Kong, New Zealand, China as well. So I'm not quite sure what the daily count of the centres there is, but it's, it's up over 50. Wow. So you've basically done this in what? 22 years. Yeah, yeah, it's been a long road to be an overnight success some days. <laughs> oh, that that's really not that long though, Kathy. It's extraordinary. And just give us a can you give us a figure? What sort of uh, revenue does this entire group do roughly? Look, it's a private company, so we don't typically disclose disclose revenues. The impact that we actually monitor and most effectively is the number of patients that we yep. impact. And so at the moment, we're well north of 2 million patients impacted per wow. annum. And our, I guess our next stretch goal is, our goals are to double that every three years. We went from 1 million to 2 million patients in well under well under the three-year target, and we expect to double from the two to the four in a similar similar brief window. 
like everything, you know, COVID's had some degree of impact over the last 12 months, but mm. not significantly. Yeah, so- all right. I might get to COVID a bit later, but let's go back to how you started on that business journey. You, you said, you know, you got together with Stu, got engaged, and what, a week later, you bought your first pharmacy. You started this business journey, but you both trained in a profession in pharmacy, not in business, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, the great irony is given how many, given how many pharmacists actually graduate and go on to run their own, own pharmacies, at the time that we went through, there were actually, you actually only had 12 hours of business training in the whole, in the whole three years. Really? So it didn't necessarily leave you particularly well equipped, but I guess I'd been certainly very interested in business, I'd actually worked part time in a pharmacy while I was while I was at high school, which really. So what you started, you started what packing shelves and packing yeah, um, back, drugs into little the boxes floor and for patients. The nappies. <laughs> That's amazing. I'd walk up the hill after school, vacuum the floors, restack the nappies. But I think you know, I, I owe a lot to the pharmacist who was the owner of that pharmacy. He clearly identified that I I was ambitious and that I had and gave me a lot of opportunities. You know. In, I think it was my the, the school holidays at the end of year 11, he actually got me to project manage the installation of the first point of sale system into the pharmacy. So he gave me a lot of opportunities that came in very handy down the track. But I'd done, I'd done accounting for a few years at high school and had, had I guess, some more business background there. And when I first graduated as a pharmacist, the very first thing that I did was actually enrol in a uh, in a business management course by correspondence because there was no such thing as the internet really back then, mm. and just to up my level of business skills and give me some more qualifications in that area. So, how did you and Stuart meet and sort of get together for both this romantic life, married <laughs> life, eventually, and professional life together? Well, we actually were at uni at Monash at the same time and, and we, we knew each other there, but we weren't we certainly weren't together and we were kind of in, I guess, intersecting friendship groups and then went our own separate ways after university and Stuart actually was playing cricket semi-professionally in England for, for quite some time and one of my really close friends from uni who was also a pharmacist went over on a trip to the UK, saw Stuart while she was over there and they, she and her partner and Stuart went on a trip for a few days around Ireland. And this was back in the day when the only way that you could actually get photos was to literally get take them on a camera, get them printed out. At the pharmacy. (laughs) And get them developed at a pharmacy. So when Sharon came back from the UK, she had all of the photos from from the trip as hard copies. And so it was her partner's 30th birthday and she invited Stuart to come along, thought it was a good chance to hand over those photos. And I was there at the party and we, we ran into each other for the first time since we'd seen each other at the university. And we yeah, we basically, I think he proposed for the first time six weeks after that. And oh, we, my uh, we goodness. Ended up getting engaged. 
we ended up getting engaged too. It wasn't quite that fast. No, I was going to say, you said the first time. What does that mean? How many yeah. times did he actually propose? Well, that was, that one was, he'd been at a bus day at the races since midday the day before and it was he proposed oh, by a phone right. call at 3am and I suggested that maybe we both needed to give a little more thought to it before, before that was a path that we went down. Yeah, maybe not as much alcohol lubrication involved. Yeah, he assured me that he hadn't had a drink since midnight because he was trying to think of what the best way to do this was and I wondered what the options that he rejected were in favour of a phone call at 3am. But anyway, he got there in the end. Oh, that's extraordinary. But still it sounds like it was a fairly whirlwind courtship before you did decide to get married. Yeah, look, I think it took a few people by surprise, particularly, you know, I'd been dating my my high school sweetheart when we were at uni together and that subsequently married him and he turned out maybe not to be (laughs) such a sweetheart in the end and that it all ended up fairly pear-shaped. And so I think my parents and many of my friends were, were quite concerned that all of a sudden they just sort of picked me through the pieces of this fairly traumatic divorce and here I was jumping straight, <laughs> getting, getting engaged again quite quite shortly thereafter. But I think history shows it's been a pretty good partnership on every level, both personally and professionally. Extraordinary. So how did you make the leap, in a sense, from being a pharmacist to suddenly really thinking along business and entrepreneurial lines? I mean, would you say that perhaps you both stumbled into business having thought you were going to be maybe a pharmacist and own maybe one or two suburban urban pharmacies? Yeah, look, I think I think Stuart probably maybe had a bigger vision, never really saw himself probably being, you know, pharmacy was probably a means to an end, I think mm. would be fair to say for him. Whereas for myself, ironically, that divorce was actually the thing that really changed the trajectory of my life quite significantly because up until then, I think I had probably been thinking more around that more traditional pathway, I guess, get my pharmacy degree, you know, move into ownership of you know, sort of a couple of pharmacies maybe in adjacent suburbs and work through that. And then when that marriage ended quite suddenly, it really sort of tore up the rule for my life and I had to really think very hard about what what it was that I actually wanted to do and that the pathway that I'd probably been set on for the previous six or seven years It had gone dramatically off course in my mind and I had the opportunity to reinvent it and it probably also changed my risk profile, I think, as well, just in that illustration of, you know, the the best laid plans don't always end up the way that you thought they were going to do. And So you became less risk averse? No, more, I think. More, I think, because I think it was, well, I'd I'd been probably reasonably non-risk averse going down what was probably a safer and more well-travelled pathway and then that ended up not not going to plan. So then I think I thought, well, it was almost a, well, what have I got to lose? Let's, let's tear up the rule book and really go all out here. Yeah. How did you settle on a business model in the very beginning? Did you actually write down a bit of a plan even to buy that first one or two pharmacies or was there really no written plan, no business model? No, no, there, there certainly wasn't a plan. I, I think what it was was really around a 
combination of opportunities that presented at the time, some internal for me uh, that we just spoke about, Mm -hmm. and then some external industry-based changes as well. And one of those being, you know, the aged care opportunity really arose because at the time it was when the aged care accreditation standards were first being introduced for that industry. And medication management was a really significant component of Mm. that. And so that created an opportunity to create a really, I guess, standardised approach to medication management for aged care facilities. And the accreditation standards also coincided with a consolidation in that industry where individually sort of, I guess, mum and pop owned nursing homes were actually being acquired and brought together by either the the charitable sector or the private aged care industry sector and consolidating and systemising so that you could actually get a contract. If you had the right geographical footprint and support model, you could actually get a contract with an aged care operating group rather than just kind of being the pharmacy on the next block and actually delivering the service there by virtue of proximity. Yeah, so size started to be important. Yeah, so that was really how the how the aged care component started and then Stuart's expertise was much more in the hospital pharmacy sector of the market where he'd been working for some time and, again, a similar external forces combined, I guess, with that internal motivation arose where the way that the, again, similar consolidation was happening in the hospital in the hospital ownership space, but also there was a real change in the way that health fund negotiations were occurring, occurring at that time and pharmacy costs instead of being completely bundled into an overall service model were being split out. So right. a model of partnership and transparency with the hospitals was something that was really appealing and that was that was the model that we designed and implemented in that sector. Right. So just so I'm clear, you didn't actually start to buy or set up any suburban high street pharmacies. It was all this model through aged care and through hospitals. Yeah. The pharmacies that we actually bought to get started were picked for their geographic, well, well, partially they were picked for their geographic location because our customers never actually came to the pharmacies. You know, we came to them. We had teams of people working in the pharmacies, processing the orders, which were all at that stage coming in via fax, and then actually going out on the road and delivering the services to the hospital. So we actually, I guess, probably went against the trend, which was always around pick the business based on the location for the most foot traffic and the most appeal to the customer, whereas we went on geographic location, but we actually were almost looking for the worst physical location and the most awfully presented pharmacies that we could find because then we didn't actually have to pay very much for them in goodwill. And the reality was the less people who came in the front door, the better for us because our model was all about kind of big dispensaries out the back rather than retail shop fronts when we first got started. Right. And to use those big dispensaries to deliver product, sell product to the aged care facilities and hospitals. Exactly. Exactly. And and down the track, we have some retail presence across the pharmacy network, but the vast majority of them still are very sort of that dispensary focused with a minimal front shop um, support activity. How quickly did you start to grow from the beginning? Well, we we bought the first pharmacy on the Monday, and then we that was in that was in Brisbane, and then in, we bought. Sorry, this is in nineteen ninety eight. 
1998, we bought pharmacies in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and on the Sunshine Coast in the next four months and went from sort of the two of us to 100 employees in that window. Oh, wow. In four months. In four months. So, yeah, it was pretty It was pretty crazy. For the first 12 months, I never spent longer than 72 hours in one location because, again, pre-internet, it literally was, you know, the way that you communicated with yeah. people was by being in front of them. So we were hiring, we were training, we were sort of, I guess, communicating the vision, plus also doing the customer meetings and actually, you know, selling our services to the customers. And then packing up and going from one place to the next and then doing it all again. Yeah, so you were growing enormously quickly. Yeah. But you're saying did you have to actually go and sort of cold call new customers or did they come often with the pharmacies that you bought? No, no, they never came with the pharmacies we bought. None of those four pharmacies had existing, even one existing aged care or hospital contracts. So every piece of business was new and sourced. So you built all that business up in the aged care and hospital business. You went looking for those contracts. Yep. The two two of us were cold calling and, you know, going going to conferences, selling the services. I think it would be very, very hard spread in those first probably three years to find a single contract that Stuart and I hadn't, either Stuart or I or both of us hadn't actually been in the meeting doing the hard sell on. Wow. And in that time, in the three years, just give me a picture with the sales and the cash flow, were they always good or was it a bit hand to mouth, (laughs) particularly in that first or second year? Oh, it was extraordinarily hand to mouth because, I mean, within that same first four months, you know, by Christmas that year, I think we got engaged in at the start of July. And by Christmas that year, we were doing a million dollars a year annualized turnover, which was quite oh, significant yeah. back in 1998. But our expenses were growing really rapidly as yeah. well. And because when we're starting up those new contracts, there's actually a lot of labor and a lot of cost that goes into the setup of the contract. And then the revenue sort of takes a month or so to start to follow. Yes. So when you're going, when you're growing so rapidly, yeah, the cash burn was really significant. And we were really fortunate that we actually had, I guess, partners and suppliers in the business who understood within the pharmacy industry, who actually understood the vision of what it was that we were trying to do and also understood the cash flow ramifications of that and supported us with extended trading terms to essentially to let that cash yeah. flow creep up. But yeah, it was it was really hand to mouth. I mean, I can remember at that stage the you know, the major revenue was in was from the government with the payments for the prescriptions and that would hit every Friday, but quite often not until after close of business on a Friday. So I know we used to go on the weekend to sort of do our do our grocery shopping and we'd be checking out who was yeah, we couldn't go to the supermarket because they actually had electronic payment systems. We needed to go to places that still had the swap credit card swipe machines because <laughs> we knew that until Monday when we could actually get some of that money across to get the credit card balance back down below its limit, that if it had gone through an electronic system, it would have got knocked back and we wouldn't have been able to buy groceries for the week. Oh so we my used gosh. to actively just check and make sure that it was, you know, we needed those extra three or four days that the swipe card credit cards actually took to process rather than the electronic system so yeah it was it was pretty hand to mouth for uh, for a good window of time there extraordinary but 
how did you get the revenue, I guess, the funding to even buy those first four pharmacies? And to get to the point, how many pharmacies did you have by Christmas 1998? Was it still those four generating yeah, $1 million it, it was, in turnover? Yeah, because they, they were strategically geographically located to allow us to service yes. clients, I guess, in each of those markets. So we were servicing the Melbourne metropolitan region from the one there, yep. same in Sydney, same in Brisbane, and then the one on the Sunshine Coast. We actually, that was where our first hospital contracts were up on the Sunshine Coast. So it, we had bought the pharmacy at Maroochydore to service. We had four private hospitals that formed our first private hospital contract. So yeah. we didn't actually expand the number of pharmacies that we had for for quite some time. We sort of had those four original pharmacies for the bulk of the first few years. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, cash flow, you're talking about that, it was very hand-to-mouth. At what point did it become sort of cash flow positive? And because, of course, cash flow doesn't always necessarily mean profit, does it? No, no. So we always had a lag, I guess. We really traded on trading terms for for quite an extended period of time and were always able to, I guess, keep slightly ahead of the game from a cash flow perspective with the revenues coming in and then still playing catch up. If we we hadn't had those extended trading terms and the support there from our suppliers, it would have been much more challenging. And the initial funding for the business came from the house that I actually basically bought my ex out of in our divorce and the equity that we had in that, I took a second mortgage on that house. Really? And that essentially provided the seed capital for the business. Yeah. So you essentially sort of bootstrapped it and and kept putting whatever you made in. So (laughs) when you, you did mention partners before, you meant supplier, customer partners, not investor partners. No, no, we didn't have investor partners. Yeah, so you what you borrowed from the bank still stayed with we those were first in few debt years. Up to the eyeballs. <laughs> oh gosh, from the bank and from the suppliers. Yeah, I guess our first partners really came in two thousand and two. We actually had a reach out from a group of fellow pharmacists who ran a similar business model to us in southeast Queensland, and they were all in their mid fifties and looking at what their kind of retirement and exit strategies were and we were these sort of two bolshy late 20 year olds who'd moved up to Queensland by that stage from Victoria and taken one of the big hospital contracts that they thought that they were a shoo-in for but fair credit to them rather than actually being bitter and resentful about that they saw it as an opportunity and reached out to see if we'd be interested in joining forces so we sort of built a relationship with them over over that a year or so from that first reach out and then in 2002 we we basically rolled our pharmacy business into their pharmacy business on a succession strategy and that was when our original brand which was active care moved into their brand which was APHS and then over the next sort of 3 or 4 years all of those original partners actually retired and we bought out and took over their stakes one by one over time. Yeah. Kathy, just to sort of step back in those beginning years, those first years of the pharmacies, to be clear, who else was doing what you were doing to either, you know, have pharmacies really well geographically placed 
located to service aged care facilities, to service hospitals and private hospitals, I guess really under one brand, one roof, or were you innovators in that? Look, I think the thing that we were probably first in doing was doing it across multiple states. Right. There were others doing it in in their individual states at the time, but we were the first to probably go, certainly the first to go three states simultaneously, which I think was maybe you know, one of those things with the benefit of hindsight, you look back and, well, I would guess you look back and go, yes, it was a good idea because it worked out all right in the end. But at the same time, when we did it, we probably didn't really know, you didn't know what you didn't know. And so APHS, the business that we actually ended up merging with, were operators in that space yeah. in southeast Queensland. There was another company called HPS who was doing that out of South Australia. Okay, but you expanded interstate. So there were there were others around. Yeah. yeah, but we were the first ones who certainly to the best of my knowledge we were the first ones to go multi-state simultaneously. So Kathy, just take me back to your early life. You grew up in country Victoria. Was your family in business? Were they entrepreneurial? Look, again, with hindsight, I can now see my father was very entrepreneurial. But at the time that I was growing up, you know, my mum was a school teacher. And then back then, you know, when you, once you got pregnant, you actually had to retire. Mm. So she was a stay at home mum, but a, a very, probably, probably a frustrated one with in hindsight, who rather than working as a teacher, then actually, you know, she was on the kindergarten committee when we were at kindergarten. She was on the primary school committee when we were there. She was on the high school mm. parent committee when we were there. She was always very actively involved and very community minded. My dad was the eldest of seven and left school when he was 16 to start an apprenticeship at the State Electron- Electricity Committee in uh, Commission in Victoria and worked his way up from an apprentice fitter and turner there into a management role, but would have loved to have been a farmer, was always a frustrated farmer. And in the Latrobe Valley where we grew up, there's a lot of brown coal reserve land there that the SEC owned and could never actually be sold, but they used to issue long-term leases on it to pe- to people to use for farming purposes with a rider that, you know, the SEC could take it back at any time if they wanted to actually mm. mine the coal that lay beneath it. So Dad saw that as, a, I guess, a capital light way of actually being able to, to move into farming. And so... You know, initially he had no track record, so he got off of these really rubbishy pieces of land that were filled with blackberries and bad fences and everything else. And he, you know, dad was very much a hands-on Mr. Fix-It kind of guy and cleaned up the land, refenced it, you know, bought his first sort of few cows and cattle that he was running and started I guess, running cattle properties and ended up getting a very good reputation. So was getting, you know, if they had any land handed back or that they took back because it hadn't been looked after, dad was sort of given first right of refusal on that. Mm. So by the time the SEC was getting privatised and they were offering redundancy packages, I think dad was sort of first in the queue with his hand up going, this is my chance to actually, you know, live my dream that I've always wanted to live. And he took the redundancy package, bought a farm, was also running, I think he had six or seven different properties that he was leasing from the SEC by that stage and went into beef cattle farming full time. 
unfortunately, he uh, had only been doing that for a few years when he got diagnosed with mesothelioma, which is the asbestos-related lung mm. cancer contracted from pushing the asbestos trolley around yeah. back in those early days as an apprentice at 16. And he passed away sort of within less than a year of, of the diagnosis there. So, oh, Kathy, his, so uh, his life as a farmer was unfortunately cut short way too yeah, soon. But, but looking back, you can really see and identify those entrepreneurial tendencies that he had. Yeah. So do you think that's that's where your entrepreneurialism has come from? You're a, a kind of a, a risk-taking or backing yourself? I think so. And certainly my work ethic, you know, Dad really illustrated that if you worked hard and committed to something, the circumstances that you found yourself in, you had the ability to change by, by virtue of hard work. Mm. Did you always have a burning ambition to have your own business or no? was that more organic? No, I think that those early years in the working in the pharmacy part-time after school certainly gave me a, gave me a view that that was something that I could do, that yeah. if I went and got my pharmacy degree that I could see myself then moving into pharmacy ownership. But it was probably at that stage more that, I guess, that more traditional style of, of vision and plan around thinking, you know, I'll, I'll go into a management role somewhere and then get offered a junior partnership after that and then as the pharmacist retires, potentially take yeah. over that business and maybe buy an adjoining one somewhere nearby. So certainly the pharmacy work experience, I guess, was probably the first thing that gave me the view that I could actually maybe one day be a business owner. Yeah. Kathy, just let's go back to the business journey. In those first years, what was the next step and was there a game changer in those early years, either a particular contract or something that, you know, the light bulb went off and you knew that this model or this path you were on was actually going to work and be successful? Yeah, look, I mean, I think we'd we'd seen it we'd seen quite quickly that the aged care industry was very, very interested in what it was that we were selling. And we were picking up a lot of work there really quickly. Probably the real the big game changing moment was the the that first private hospital contract that I alluded to where we actually were awarded the contracts for there was a hospital operator at the time who'd actually just done an acquisition and had a, a group of hospitals in on the Sunshine Coast that were out of contract. And Stuart had been in there talking with them about the kind of service that we wanted. And they sort of just turned around and said, actually, we've, we're, we're really interested in this. And we've got this group of hospitals here that are out of contract. If we give you those can you put that model in place there and we'll use that as a trial run before we look at a bigger contract across a broader across a, a broader region and we just sort of looked at each other and said, yep yep we can do that we and can deliver that and thought, oh, okay and then what ran home cracking. and thought oh my god how are we going to deliver that Pretty much started running really, really hard. And, you know, and I mean, the reality was that you know, we were living in Brisbane, but the hospitals were in Caboolture, Caloundra, mm -hmm. Nambour, and then there was a new one opening as a public-private partnership up at Noosa. And 
you know, Stuart actually was the ward pharmacist. He would go and do the ward round at Caboolture. Then he'd go to Caloundra, do the ward round there. Then he'd go to Nambour, do the ward round there. Then he'd shoot up to Noosa and do the ward round there. He'd fax the order through to the pharmacy in Maroochydore and the team there would, with any notes or any clinical notes that were needed around that, and the clinical team there would prepare that and then the drivers would then get those orders on the road and get them out to the hospitals and to the patients. So, and for, for people who aren't familiar with the geography, that's basically, you know, a, probably a 300-kilometre round trip mm. every day. And he, you know, he'd be up at 5am to be on the road to actually start that and get that done to, to make that happen. So there was no easy, there were no easy shortcuts in those, in those early years. You yeah. know, we were both working every hour known to mankind. Really? Well, it's interesting because you've gone on to establish some amazing and pretty big private hospital contracts in, you know, Victoria, in New South Wales. You're in the Seventh-day Adventist Hospital, which people in Sydney would know very well, the Epworth Group in Victoria, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So that that's actually a full that's actually a full circle one where we don't actually Stuart and I don't own the pharmacy that service the Epworth. So that's owned by David Slade, who is the son of Graham Slade that Stuart was actually working for at the time that we got engaged. And we always stayed in, oh, really? in good contact with Graham and David. And then Back a number of years ago, David actually brought both the Slade Pharmacies and Slade Health, the compounding business that he built, into become part of Icon Group. And so I guess that that kind of circle w- was closed there as as we became we went back to being work colleagues and and partners again. Did you have input at that stage? from advisors, be they management consultants, investment bankers, accountants, or was it really you and Stuart who were doing it all? Look, a lot of it a lot of it was us, but we've worked with an account of pharmacy specialist accounting firm in Brisbane based for really from the time that we started the business. We'd met them through pharmacy conferences. Right. And Mark Nicholson, who was who was the partner who was who was assigned to us, is now not only a close personal friend, but still our business advisor. Yeah. Not only for the pharmacies, but also for our for our own investment committee now. So he's played a really key role. One of the other senior partners from that same accountancy practice was a guy called Bruce Annabelle, who joined Stuart and I formed an advisory board quite early on because we realised that we actually it was a. It, Probably in hindsight, maybe it should have been sooner, but probably six or seven years in, we actually formed an advisory board as the APHS partners started to retire and the business became even larger. And Bruce Annabelle joined that advisory board. We also had a lady called Annette Schmidi, who was an executive. Well, she'd been on many different healthcare organisations and particularly in the Catholic healthcare space based out of Sydney. So they joined us and John Jackson, who was a uh, pharmacist who was who was a partner in one of the pharmacies that we had the advisory board was absolutely crucial for us because the risk of it of Stuart and I being I guess business partners and life partners was that we were immersed in each other 24/7 and there was a real risk that we could each talk each other 
yeah. into something yeah. with no external and broader perspective. So having that external advice didn't always mean that we, we they would be the first to tell you. We didn't always follow their advice, but it was a really important check and balance for us to to bounce our ideas off and get their input rather than kind of risk dinner table think, I guess. Yeah. I want to skip forward. I mean, you faced enormous hurdles and challenges. Tell us a bit about those. The GFC, the global financial crisis, struck in 2008-9. As I understand it, you were pretty loaded with debt. We were, yeah, we were in debt up to our eyeballs. And if if you talk about what what were probably some of the darkest days and the biggest challenges, the period after the after the GFC hit in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine is certainly up there. We'd taken on debt to buy out the APHS partners as as they were retiring, and at the time we were actually in the process of losing a number of contracts from Ramsey Healthcare as they'd pivoted, I guess, on their pharmacy strategy and gone to move from their external pharmacy provider. We were the the largest of those. We weren't the only, but we were the largest of those into taking on pharmacy as an external division, as an internal division rather. So we were going to lose 60% of our revenue and associated profitability over that next 18-month period, which, which we'd known about. Fortunately, we'd known about that since 2007, which had given us time to look at, well, what was our strategy going to be going forward? And that was where we had a two-pronged strategy, one which was, I guess, doubling down on the expertise in cancer care pharmacy because we were really seeing the opportunities there. And we've actually still got kind of the white papers from a sort of company leadership session that we ran back in 2007 looking at what does the business become from here. And there were two strategies identified, one to double down in cancer care pharmacy, which was kind of a three-part plan expand our network of cancer care pharmacies. Second part was become an operator of the cancer care hospitals, not just the pharmacy operator, but the operator of the hospitals themselves. Mm. And the third part of that was expand that service model to Asia, which was pretty funny back in wow, 2007. Stuart and I had ever been to Asia at that stage. That is hugely ambitious. <laughs> so that was kind of one side of the board, which, and ironically that, that, project working name was Project Icon, which was stood for Integrated Clinical Oncology Network. So build Project Icon. And then the flip side, the other strategy was to actually take the expertise that we had in compliance medication packaging that we built through the aged care pharmacy side of the business and take that from being a pharmacy product into a TGA licensed manufacturing product that could essentially produce product that could, on behalf of any pharmacy anywhere in Australia, essentially a manufacture to order style of business. So I led that project while Stuart led the Icon project. So you mean manufacturing, sorry, you mean you would not manufacture the actual drugs or the pills, but you would package them up? Yeah, yeah. So instead of if you needed to take six different tablets in the morning, yep. instead of having to open up six boxes and make sure you got the right one or two out of each one, that you actually had like a little sachet yes. with all of those six tablets labelled 8am in the morning yep. that you just had to tear the top off and, and swallow. So we'd been using that technology extensively across all of our nursing home contract work. But as, you know, with Australia ageing and people needing to stay at home for longer, 
and medication misadventure being one of the leading causes of hospitalisation, there was an identified opportunity for compliance medication packaging. And it's quite a, a space and a labour intensive thing mm. to use the manual versions mm. for retail pharmacies. So we thought if we build a manufacturing facility and basically took in contract orders on their behalf, we could essentially build a product that could meet that need. So they were our two, I guess, post-Ramsey survival strategy mechanism. Right. So that was in 2007. 2007. Yeah, the end of that year and for the next two years, the GFC really crushes a lot of business. Yeah. How terrifying and dicey was that period then for you? Oh, it, it was awful because we'd not only gone into debt to buy out the partners who were retiring, yeah. we'd also bought a whole raft of additional cancer care pharmacies that we just, you know, back then, back pre the GFC, you could literally ring up the bank and say, we're buying this, we need this much money on this date. Yeah. And they'd go, okay, and write you the loan. And we'd also, we'd started building a manufacturing plant. <laughs> we actually started building it. We bought a pharmacy in, in an industrial estate in Perth that we actually were, to, that we were physically building a manufacturing wow. plant on for the manufacturing business. So we were, I think we had 35, when the GFC hit, we were $35 million in debt and barely making interest cover and knowing that we still had pharmacy contracts from Ramsey that were still kind of exiting. So things were actually going to get worse before they got any better. So it was, it was really really grim and really dark days. So how did you continue to, I mean, even motivate your team? Did you have to lose any through that period? And were you completely open with them about the financial dire straits that you were in? No, look, we we weren't, there were four people in the business who knew just how desperate things were. Myself and Stuart, my brother, Andrew, who's an accountant by background and had actually moved up from Victoria and joined us initially as, as our CFO and then moved to CEO and now is the now is the CEO of Pharmacy Services for Icon Group. And an absolutely lovely long-term employee who was the one, Tanya, who was the one who had visibility of the bank accounts. Right. So she knew exactly how little was actually in there. So the four of us were the only ones who truly knew how grim things were because at that stage, you know, it was really, really difficult. Everybody was living in fear of losing their jobs. And, and the reality was we were the ones who needed, I guess, to carry that load and to make those decisions. What we needed everybody else in the business was, was to play their role. And we had a strategy on a page of what we needed to do to essentially to get through both on the icon side of the page and on the packaging, APHS packaging, which was the manufacturing mm. business side of the stage and the pharmacy side of the page. The page was split into three and everybody knew where they sat on that page and what the part of the business they worked in was focused on and needed to do to deliver and to get through. And so that was the bit that we communicated really right. broadly. Every but, single person in the business knew the role that they needed to play okay, but and you kind of our role was to juggle the balls in the background to make sure that we could continue to pay anyone. But we never, we didn't lay off a single person over that time. Yeah, but you weren't necessarily open with everybody about the possibility it might all go under. Well, the the reality was, I think, and this is something that we've always held true to, you need to make sure that people have enough information mm. to know why you're asking them to do what you're asking them to do. But at the same time, 
burdening them, particularly with a really heavy load of stressful information that they actually don't have any ability to directly Mm. influence there. You know, it was Stuart and Andrew who were the ones having to go in and meet with the bank literally on a weekly basis and give them the update as to, to where we were at. It was, you know, the three of us who were monitoring those figures on a daily basis, making sure that we had enough to make payroll and to go there. Telling the whole company that that was how grim things was, wasn't actually going to, none of them could have actually assisted with yeah. that. And then we would have had to manage their stress as yes, well as our yes. own. And to be honest, we were hell-bent managing our, our own stress at that time. Yeah, fair enough. How close do you think to failure? How close is failure at any time? But how close was it at that time? Oh, it, it's it's never been closer. It re- literally was a week-to-week proposition. And in some degrees, it actually would have been easier. It would have been easier to fail. It would have been easier just to say, look, this is just too hard. Hand the keys back and and walk away with a view that you know we'll be at, we'll you know we'll serve our time. We'll start mm. something else. But the thing that I guess got us out of bed and kept us going every day was that was an easier consequence for us. But it wasn't necessarily an easier consequence for the three hundred and fifty people who worked for us who yeah. would have been out of work and the consequences for them and their families it would have caused disruption to our patients, all of those nursing home patients who were depending on us to supply their medication. If we'd shut the doors, that would have caused extraordinary disruption for them and the staff in those nursing homes. Same thing for the patients in the hospitals. So it may have been easier for us personally to walk away, but the thing that kept getting us out of bed was the ramifications for for everybody else. It, yeah. it, you know, it sounds cheesy sometimes, but it's where you really do tap into the purpose of what your business is yeah. about rather than any individual reward. So briefly, how did you get through the GFC financially and survive? Really just by executing on the plan. You know, we, we were open with the banks and we said that things are going to get worse before they get better, got better. And we hit budget month on month for I think it was 37 months in a row. And nobody got very excited when we were hitting those budgets and the budgets were showing a worsening position. What it did illustrate though was we knew our business, we knew our numbers, we knew our business and we knew exactly how how it was going to perform and we were able to execute on the on the plan that delivered that performance. So once we actually started turning the corner and the numbers started to improve, we kind of almost built that credibility by the fact that we'd said it was going to get worse and it did get worse. And then when it got better, when we said it was going to get better and it kept edging its way through and through more positively. But I think, I think in some degrees there was a, you know, there was a proportion of luck to it in that the banks had bigger issues than us mm. <laughs> at that stage. You know, they had, the property developers were yep. probably the ones that were their immediate area of focus. And by the time, you know, they, they rode us really hard, but we still had cash flow come yeah. through. We were still performing to our, our budgets were still tracking. And by the time that they dealt with the immediate messes, we were sort of starting to come out the other side. Yeah. And your marriage survived. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't think the business would have survived if we weren't married. I think it was... Oh, that's interesting. The fact that we both had that singularity of purpose 
and we shared the stress of it, I think was something that was really important. And it, it literally was, you know, I've spoken previously about there were times when you'd come home, we'd put the kids to bed, the kids were quite little at that stage. I think Sash was seven and Sam was four. And you know, you'd put them to bed and then go, okay, whose turn is it to have the meltdown tonight about how we're going to get through this? And someone, so someone got to be the, the meltdown person and oh. someone got to be the person who kind of sat there and patted on the back and goes, we'll find a way, you know, think about this. This is, yeah, there's some light here. This is looking good. Or even if nothing was looking particularly good, it's just like we've just got to believe in ourselves and keep putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, that, that's all we can do. Oh, that's an extraordinary story. We've got loads more to talk about and we're going to do that in part two. In part two next week, Kathy Reid speaks of how they manage the rapid scale-up of their ambitious plans, dealing with the notion of a $1 billion valuation on their business baby and just where and how philanthropy, a love of cricket and even space travel now fit into her life's picture. That's next week. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.